A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high-profile and under-the-radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Our cases this week are about prominent men brazenly behaving badly. One is accused of trying to kill his wife and the other actually succeeded. There's the former podiatrist who was recently released from prison after being convicted for trying to kill his wife in a murder-for-hire plot. Investigators say that the foot doctor got out of prison with just one thing on his mind, finishing what he started. Police say that he plotted again to kill his wife, this time with his sister, the attorney, allegedly helping him. Now he's facing new charges. The man doesn't learn. But first, it's an update on the Family Feud murder case, which we have covered previously. This is the man who went on the game show and said for the whole world to hear that his biggest regret was marrying his wife. So when she was found brutally murdered, shot 14 times during their contentious divorce, the survey said he was the number one suspect and the jury said guilty. We are recording this on Wednesday, June 7th of 2023. Our guest today is Caitlin Becker, the senior reporter for the Daily Mail. You can also catch her on KTLA TV, Court TV, and so many other outlets. Caitlin O is giving us context to what's going on out there. And Caitlin, you're joining us today from your beautiful studios. We are back in the studio today. It's always nice to be here because, like you said, the lighting is a lot better. Gorgeous, 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 gorgeous. For those of you who are listening, gorgeous. All right, we have um, insane cases. So everyone, please board the crazy train because that's where we're headed today. I mean, I just can't believe what some people do, honestly. And when we get to the second case, Caitlin, I don't know if I'll be able to continue because of because of the stupidity involved with that one. Truly. Right? Right. Okay. So let's get to our first case, which is out of Quincy, Illinois, where a former Family Feud contestant has been convicted of murder. 40-year-old Timothy Bleefneck has been convicted of two counts of first-degree murder, one count of home invasion, and the death of his estranged wife, Rebecca Bleefnick, a 41-year-old ER nurse. Now, Becky was found dead in her home, shot 14 times. Now, their three sons are without a mother, without a father. And the reason for all of this, the motive, a contentious divorce and a custody battle. So now, Becky's parents, the grandparents, have custody of these three boys. When will people learn that murder is not the solution to a problem? It's not the solution to a problem, and the people who are trying to commit these murders aren't smart enough to do it and get away with it. I mean, one of the other things that was a problem in this relationship was money. This man did not want his wife to get a dime of his money and now he's probably going to go to prison for the rest of his life. So he's not going to be able to enjoy that money anyway. No, absolutely not. And, you know, this case made national headlines because the primary murder suspect had been on this game show. And and when he went on the game show, he said some ludicrous things. And we've covered this before on the podcast, if it sounds familiar, when he was first arrested. You know, as things go in the legal system... This thing moves quickly. Guys arrested in March, and we already have a conviction, and now we're waiting on sentencing, and it's June. And we're going to get sentencing by the beginning of August. It's not even going to be into the fall when this thing is going to be completely wrapped up with a bow, which is pretty 
wild considering how long these things usually take. I mean, Koberger, notwithstanding, is the one I think we're all kind of obsessed with. And you've got, you know, Chad Daybell. These things are so protracted and drawn out. This was in, out, ship shape, going to prison. That, to me, goes to show how strong the case was against him and how sort of airtight that investigation was that the police did. All of the evidence kind of just clicked right into place as soon as they started looking at the ex-husband. And you hate to say that that trope is is real. It's always the husband. But in Mm -hmm. these two cases that you and I are talking about today, it is always the husband. And it's clear as day. Yeah, it it really is. And, you know, I want to play um, this clip for everyone, because for those of you who aren't familiar with the case, it's why it's so chilling, because when you have the number one suspect and now convicted murderer, a a guy who went on a game show and, and said what he said. So let's go back to 2020 when Tim and his family went on Family Feud without without Rebecca, his wife. Okay, so it was a really big deal for the town of Quincy, only about 40,000 people. And you have to understand that Tim is a local celebrity there. He played college football. He was inducted into the Hall of Fame at Quincy University. That's where he met his wife. So this is a guy who's known, right? He's for a small town, big deal. And so the family goes on Family Feud. Okay, so it's what he said that freaked everyone out after Rebecca was found dead. I mean, people were upset when he said it, you know, originally, right? But it it was more disturbing afterwards. Okay, so let's set the scene here. So Steve Harvey is asking Tim, it's his turn up, and it's about the question on the big board for those of you who may not follow Family Feud. So the question is, what's the biggest mistake you made at your wedding? Okay. Tim sarcastically responds, saying, I do. And then he joked, oh, honey, I love you. Mm. You decide. Here's the clip. What's the biggest mistake you made at your wedding? Honey, I love you, but said I do. (laughs) Caitlin, when you see this, knowing everything you know now, how frightening is that? It's really wild how life kind of imitates art in this way. It did seem so predictive of what ultimately ended up happening. And I do take a step back because he isn't alone necessarily in that sentiment. We don't really get into the fact that it did come up on the board and I think it was in the number two spot. Had he not gone on to kill his wife, it would have been a sort of roll of the eyes. Oh, look at this guy, ball and chain, husband situation. And you might've just laughed it off. But in cast in the light of the fact that his wife went on to get murdered at his own hands, you look at something like that and you wonder how much hatred was boiling under the surface in their relationship. And at the time that he filmed this episode, at the time that this aired, their relationship was on the rocks. It wasn't good at that point. So I don't think he was speaking from a place that if maybe I said that about my husband, who I love and adore, and we have a happy relationship, and I didn't wouldn't have meant it for a hot second. You can that maybe this guy is not so genuine when he says, oh, sorry, honey, I love you. And he also had this short career as a stand-up comic. And if you ever look at his YouTube 
videos of his comedy. It's kind of dark, nasty, and I would say racist on many levels. I uh, We're not going to play a clip. We didn't for the last episode where we covered this because he was kind of offensive and kind of an angry man. And he came across actually quite different in those videos than he did on Family Feud. So clearly something else was going on. There was a lot going on behind the scenes. So let's let's go forward three years. And it's pretty clear that he did not love his wife. He pretty much hated the woman because he wanted her dead. On February 23rd of this year, Rebecca's body was found by a family member. She was shot in her home 14 times. She even tried to call 911, but the call didn't go through for a long enough period in which a car would have been dispatched. So that's, I mean, that's part of a tragedy. I'm not sure whether they could have saved her, but she did try. She did try to call for help. So at this point, they were separated about two years and the divorce was really contentious. Caitlin, there were several, I mean, within within the custody battle, within the what was going on in family court, there were also protective orders. And on both they, sides. On both sides against each other. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, that can be very messy and it's very hard for anyone on the outside to know what is going on. Is there violence on both sides? Is there violence only on one side and then it's a move by the other? Kind That's exactly of, what I think it was. Yeah. And I, I think now because she filed her protective order first and then he responded with a protective order of his own. And one of the things that they fought about was the fact that he had her gun. He had her nine millimeter weapon that she either wanted back or wanted him to pay for. And to this day, that weapon has still not been covered. And they also have not found the murder weapon. So Correct. we do not know whether that missing gun is the murder weapon. Gun has never been found. But shell casings were found at the scene of the crime that police say the ballistics on those casings matched casings found at Tim's house. And so that's why they believe that he was the shooter, the killer. One of many reasons, but mostly circumstantial. Caitlin, did you find it interesting that there was no DNA evidence? Yeah, I found that really fascinating. I think that really does kind of go to show how separate their lives were at that point. I mean, they lived about a mile away on the same road and there was none of his DNA just in the house. They had an easy separation. They had three kids that they were sharing custody with. Maybe you would have expected some hair, a fingerprint, something like that, because perhaps he would have walked in the house. Like my parents were separated when I got dropped off. One of my parents would walk me in the house of the other parents. So the fact that there was none of his DNA in that house struck me as odd. And then it kind of goes to show maybe the lengths that he went to, to ensure that he was not leaving anything behind aside from those shell casings. I mean, there was signs of forced entry. There was no DNA. There was really nothing left behind. It really wasn't until police were pointed in his direction by her friends and family who said, she's been terrified of this man. They're going through a contentious divorce. There are protective orders. She texted her sister. If something happens to me, I want them to look at my ex-husband. It was him. Once that opened their eyes and they got a warrant to search his property, it all unraveled.
Oh, it did. And, and when he was arrested, all these details that you're referring to really had not been released. So everyone was trying to figure out what was going on. Most people knew about the contentious divorce in the community, but the details really came out when the trial began in earnest in May and, and they released some of those text messages. And it's very, very chilling because it's almost as if Rebecca, who is often referred to as Becky by her family, was was speaking from beyond the grave, from mm. the grave to the jurors in that courtroom because they were her words that were read. And that was just, you know, so chilling. There's a, one friend testified that she ran into Rebecca at the at TJ Maxx, right? Everyone runs into their girlfriend at TJ Maxx. And when they start, stopped to chat, she shared with her friend that Tim had said to her that his wife will be dead before he gets a dime of his money. So it was these kinds of moments that were all expressed to the jurors, told, retold, and that was really, really disturbing. Again, all circumstantial evidence here. So Becky, as you said, had texted her sister because she wanted everything to be in writing. She even said that, I want this in writing as proof in case anything happens. So even though I believe that Tim was always suspect number one, Caitlin, he wasn't arrested for another three weeks after, after Becky's body was found. So I do believe, and maybe this goes to what you said earlier about how quickly this worked because maybe the case had been so well investigated before they arrested him. I feel like I have been seeing that as a little bit of a trend recently when it comes to some of these more high profile cases that the arrests are delayed. And this is just based on my sort of anecdotal evidence as a reporter that arrests do seem like they're coming a little bit further from the crime because it feels like with the added, I don't know if it's with the added media pressure, that investigators are really making sure to cross their T's and dot their I's so that when they make the arrest and it gets into an indictment and they get arraigned and they're officially charged and they go through court, there are no loose ends. There are no loopholes that the defense can kind of maneuver through to get out on a technicality. And I think it's really smart investigative work. Yeah, absolutely. Because at the end of the day, you want justice. You want to make sure you have the right person because it's not justice if the wrong person is exactly. either arrested or convicted because that victim still doesn't have anyone being held accountable. So it, it really works on both sides of that equation. So you're talking about Rebecca's sister, Sarah Riley. She did an interview with ABC News and she talked about that text message. Here's a clip of that. She says she wanted to put it in writing that if something ever happened to her, we should uh, first think of Tim. So Caitlin, as I said, it's just like Becky talking from the grave right here in her own words. Now, also in a text message, there's a continuation of the allegations of what Becky said she was enduring. Now from the trial, here is a clip of prosecutor Josh Jones reading another text message. He screamed in my face. He shoved me in front of the kids. He's thrown things across the room where the kids and I were standing. He's punched a hole in the wall. If things really don't go his way, I feel he can be very unstable and unpredictable. So Caitlin, according to that text message, he was violent and violent in front of the children. 
we see that in how the crime unravels as well. And like you said, it does feel like Becky was her biggest advocate at her own murder trial through the things that she did leading up to her death. It does feel like she kind of knew something was coming. And when you look at the night of the crime itself and how it unfolded, you see a lot of that anger. This is not a case of uh, necessarily a heat of the moment argument. This is someone who Googled how to silence a weapon, how to open my door with a crowbar. And we know that the door was attempted to be open with a crowbar, that he jimmied through the upstairs window. He breaks into this house with the intention to kill this woman. And the way investigators say it went, it was in the middle of the night. It it felt like a, how a, a movie scene would go, a terrifying movie scene where he essentially chased her through her own home with a weapon while she ran to save herself, tried to lock herself in the bedroom. The bedroom door gets kicked open. He She gets shot basically through the bathroom, which I think was her kind of last line of defense to hide from this man. You mentioned the 911 call that didn't go through because she didn't, you know, wasn't able to dial it long enough. So you see all of these attempts to save her own life and get away with this man. And he's relentless in his pursuit of her. And he doesn't shoot her once. He doesn't shoot her twice. He doesn't shoot her three times. He shoots her 14 times, several times in that sort of chest and torso area and several times in the arm and hand, which sounds to me, and I'm sure that a medical examiner could explain this and a death investigator could explain this even better, but it sounds like she's trying to protect herself. You know, you do this and you get arm arm and hand. So it just seems like she was trying to survive every way that she could. And he was so furious that that was never going to be a different outcome. No, I don't think so. Nothing could have protected her probably unless he had been locked up based on the descriptions of what she was enduring in this this horrible domestic violence. What I find interesting is that he also Googled what the response time was for the Quincy Police Department. You know, maybe not the most incriminating thing, but that that to me was very curious. I very also much so. he also Googled how, you know, to wash off wash off gun residue. But I think what you talked about with the crowbar is the most interesting because police said they never once publicly stated how the killer got into the house, what tools, if any, were used. And so the fact that a crowbar was used to gain entry into the boy's bedroom through the window, and that's what he had Googled, they felt like that was very damning and very specific. Again, circumstantial, but very, very specific. Then there was all this talk about a bicycle. So according to the investigation, they say that Tim used a different name, a fake name, and a fake Facebook account to buy a bicycle. And they say that the killer was seen riding a bike to and from Becky's house But the surveillance videos are not clear enough to tell you who it is or some people might say whether it's a man or a woman. So really, you can't tell who's riding that bicycle. So Tim's defense said, look, you cannot prove that that is Tim by any means. And there's no DNA. This is all circumstantial. And that was their defense the whole time. But I do. Oh, and then when they went to arrest him. Didn't they find that bicycle, a bicycle ditched somewhere near his house? 
somewhere near the house. And that bicycle, I believe, was paid for with cash off of Facebook Marketplace. And I think Tim himself also had a bicycle in his home, but it had a flat tire. So it wasn't likely to be the bicycle that maybe he could have he could have ridden. But the bicycle in and of itself sticks out to me because I connect that to the Google search for response time. So you have to assume you don't want to drive your own car because people are going to be able to recognize the father's car drop at his ex-wife's house. And maybe you don't want to walk, even though same street a mile away conceivably could walk. But if you know the response time, you want to get there and back in something like five minutes, which is what a bike ride would take versus 10 or 15 for walking. It seems so calculated and yes, circumstantial, but when you lay out all of these circumstantial bits and pieces, and then you look at the victim, this wonderful mother who is scared for her life, who's devoted her life as a nurse to caring for other people, this just lifelong caregiver, even a traveling nurse through COVID, the scariest time to be a nurse, and you put all of that together, I do think it would have been impossible for a jury not to come to the conclusion that they came to. I think it was clear as day that this is the man who was responsible for Becky's murder. What did you think about on the day of the murder? This to me was, he got caught in a lie. And ordinarily you'd say, oh, all right. But it's the kind of story that he weaved that I found really troubling. So he, according to investigators, called the school, because the three boys went you know, to the local school, calls the school and says, do not let the boys walk home alone. And then he gets to the school and waits for them. He's like, they're almost an hour early waiting for the boys. Then this is how manipulative he is. Tim calls Becky's father and says, the school called. Becky never picked up the boys. Wonder what's going on which starts the whole cycle of where's Becky, where's Becky is dead. So the initial story and report came out as woman, mom did not show up to pick up the children from school, starts a search, she's found dead. But that was prompted by the killer himself. It really, you mean manipulation is the textbook term in this case. And I, if I'm remembering correctly, I also think he called the school to say he would be picking up yes, he the did. children. So right. you have all of these pieces that day moving around because it sounds like he doesn't want his children to find their mother's body. So he sets this plan in motion and ends up having her father find his daughter's body, which is, you know, equally as horrific. But he didn't care about about that. I guess you could say he had some care and concern for his own children because he didn't want them to see that. But yeah, he's moving all these little chess pieces around not and not winning the game because mm-hmm. it's clear that he lied and was manipulating the situation. And when you're caught in a lie like that, because the school is going to say, no, no, it's he told us he was picking up the kids. He told us not to let them walk home alone. So, you know, if I'm a juror, and I hear that part of all of this, I'm like, ooh, okay, that, that is so devious. A tiny lie, tiny lie that sets all these things in motion, right? And he's probably sitting there just waiting, waiting for her body to be found. You know, just, it's it's so awful and it's so devious and it's so disgusting that I I, I know it's not the biggest thing 
in the entire case, but that for some reason really, really bugged me. Because it goes to remorse. There was none. There was clearly no regret, no remorse, no second thoughts. He worked as, oh God, as like specifically and calculated is the word I'm looking for. He worked as calculated after killing, after seeing his the mother of his children dead and bloody at his own hands. And he was still calculating and crafting this story. It's cold-blooded. And with his kids right there, because all I can think of is these three children who have no idea of what's just happened. This man does know what's happened. And for that hour or two hours, whatever the time was, from the time they saw their dad and dad was like there picking him, picking them up. Oh, and the pretense and the lies to these innocent children knowing exactly what's happened. Oh, I, I couldn't. I couldn't. I would, I would vomit. I just I, I could not handle that. Yep. So that's why I think... It really, really, really upsets me. So, you know, I, I, I want to make clear here that this entire time, even though he's been convicted, Tim has insisted that he is innocent. And his defense was, you know, basically saying they didn't prove their case because it was all circumstantial. Tim did not take the stand in his own defense. Probably wise probably yeah. wise because i always say you take the stand if you can answer the questions that the jury has that nobody else can answer now if you're going to lie about those things the jury's going to know it because it doesn't make sense so it didn't take very long for this jury to deliberate about four hours they found him guilty on all counts one of the jurors who works at the local television station but not in the news department was actually you know had a ringside view to everything as a juror. And after the verdict was read, this juror who works for the TV station went into the studio and did a debrief of what it was like. And that I always find so insightful when we hear from jurors, because you always want to know, was it always obvious to them? And he said, from the very beginning, it all really lined up against him. So it's it's really interesting um, when he talks about what happened when they got into the deliberations. So here is a clip from WGEM-TV, and this is the juror, Mike Provine, being interviewed. Once we got into deliberations, we sat down and we just kind of worked it out and talked it out, and we all felt like we were on the same page, and we put it to a vote. And, and uh, there was one that was undecided but I don't think it was because of the evidence or anything like that. It was just, it's, it's such a heavy decision for one person to make. So what we did was we just talked it out. We wrote everything out. We had a couple teachers in the jury and, and they kind of did their teacher thing and they were really awesome about handling it, putting it together, writing it out, putting all the pieces into place. And then eventually, uh, we all came around to the unanimous decision. I love that there were teachers on the jury who used their educational skills to break down the case and make it clear for everyone. So when it came down to the final vote, everyone was in agreement. Isn't that brilliant? You almost would think that 
some attorneys or law firms who want to have these kinds of lawyers on retainer or these kinds of teachers on retainer so that the lawyers could get the lesson from the teachers because the teachers can explain it to the jury. Sometimes lawyers do get a little too caught up in the legalese or the science and juries can get lost, but you take it to a teacher who can explain it and break it down into those bite-sized pieces the way they would explain it to a child and it just makes sense. It really does go to show what a science and how important jury selection is. Absolutely, absolutely. I just just love getting Me that too. insight. So Timothy's sentencing is scheduled for August 11th of this year. He faces 45 years to life. I hope he gets it all. And Becky's sister released a statement on behalf of the family. It's a pretty long statement, but I think, you know, there's something about this part that really resonated with me. She wrote, quote, the judicial process cannot bring her back, nor can it heal our wounds, but we are relieved that the verdict delivers justice. We talk about justice on this program all the time. What does it mean? What will it look like? And, and the great tragedy here is a mother is dead, a father's never getting out of prison, and there are three boys now being raised by grandparents. There's no justice. There's no justice. It breaks your heart. Another part of her statement sat with me and like I really held on to it when she talked about thanking the investigators and the media for really shining a light on Becky's story and making Becky the priority. And it reminds me why you and I do what we do and why we talk about these stories, because it is oftentimes the perpetrators who get the headlines and the stories and the people get obsessed with how the crime was committed. But we really do still continue to focus on the victims. And like you said, it is about the mother who is lost and the children who are left. And that's our responsibility to to keep in the headlines and to keep at the forefront of people's minds. So I thought it was a really beautiful statement that that she released. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Our next case is nothing short of baffling. I, you know, Caitlin, I didn't even believe that it was true. I actually went to Will, our producer. I said, Will, can you check my homework? Because there's no way that, I mean, this must be a prank. This must be a mistake, but it's not a mistake. This gives new meaning to repeat offender. And the man, this man is a complete idiot. We are talking about a New York podiatrist who was convicted of plotting to kill his wife. Convicted, sentenced, served time in prison. Comes out of prison, and police say he plotted again to kill her. And so he gets arrested again. I can't help but laugh because of just how absurd this case is. Just how why? I mean, the definition of insanity, doing the same thing and expecting different results and how this man thought that when he was released from prison for trying to kill his wife, that no one would be checking up to make sure he doesn't try to kill his wife. And here we are full circle 
he is charged again, going to court again for trying to kill his wife. I, I just, I mean, he obviously really wants this woman dead. He has not succeeded, thank God. Now, in the second case, he is indicted. He is charged. Not a lot of details coming out about the second. Presumed innocent, though, I mean, you have to wonder if the man goes to court again on these charges, how do you not bring up the fact that he was convicted of doing this once before. You know, they always say, you know, prior crimes can't be brought into trial. But I think there's a really strong argument that this, that the, you have to bring this one in. How do you? Absolutely. I'm right? curious how they're going to argue the probative versus prejudicial value of bringing in these charges because it really does seem insane not to inform the jury that this person is a. He has been convicted and served time for doing the exact crime he's being charged for again. But if it's not allowed in court, I because we don't know the details, I don't know how much evidence there is to um, to convict him for this. He, he was pretty dumb the first time around. So there was a ton of I mean, he's basically caught red handed the first time around. So I don't imagine he got any smarter after spending a few years in prison. So. I have to assume there's a solid amount of evidence, but I'm very curious once we get back into court, which I think their next appearance is at the end of this month, just to get some more details about the charges and the crime and how it unraveled because the way the first one unraveled, Anna. What is wrong with this man? What is wrong with him? I, I just, you know, there's a part of me that just can't even discuss this. It's so stupid, but we will. So we're going to talk about the first case, because we know the details of that. That will give you insight into this man, how he thinks and what's going on in the world. And then you will see that he really is an idiot. Okay, this case is out of Rockland County, New York. So 49-year-old Ira Bernstein, who served nearly five years in prison for soliciting the murder of his wife, he's now facing these new felony charges related to the latest attempt on this poor woman's life. What did this woman do? Prosecutors allege that this time around, Ira enlisted the help of his sister, Jacqueline Goldberg, who's 40 years old, and they're accusing them of destroying evidence of Ira's alleged murder plot. Now, this is important because his sister, Jacqueline, is an attorney. And she's now been charged in connection with this crazy plot. Again, that, presumed that innocent. That is what gets me the whole time. The entire time is the fact that she is an attorney, not a criminal attorney. I think she's a labor attorney, but she went to law school. She is familiar with the law as a lawyer, as a professional. And somehow, I wonder if that's why he allegedly tapped her for help this time, because he thought, okay. It'll be a lot. I won't get caught this time because I'm going to get a crack legal line to help me out. And here they are back where he was five years ago. Unless, which I think is also a possibility here, because, again, we don't know and presumed innocent on the second series of charges. What if he got himself in, into some hot water, meaning he's gotten to his old bad behaviors, confided in his sister, the attorney. She's like, oh, my God, Ira, what is wrong with you? <laughs> Because she's accused of destroying evidence. Maybe that's her contribution. I don't know. I'm just speculating here. Maybe that's her contribution. And then she gets caught up in this insanity. Because really, 
you have to think there has to be other members of the family who are sane, especially the attorneys, to say, Ira, what is wrong with you? Leave her alone. Enough already. Someone has to shake him and say, stop trying to kill your wife at this point. You'd think the prison sentence would have done that for him. But I guess it was not harsh enough because he pops right out and he finds himself back arrested on the similar charges. Unbelievable. Now, the first time Ira tried to kill his wife, he tried to hire a car a car salesman. All right. I'm telling you, this is like the movie Fargo. I swear to you, it's like Dumb and Dumber. It definitely is. Meets Dumb Fargo. and Dumber meets Fargo in New York. That's what this case is. <laughs> this is just, this is, this is insanity. And he partnered so, with his girlfriend. The girl, I swear the girlfriend in this case. Oh, I love the girlfriend. She thought she was Tony Soprano. Oh, I love her. I mean, I don't love her, but... Again, what an idiot. So the wife here is Susan Bernstein, so we can all follow. Okay, so a little bit of Ira, a little bit on Ira. Ira was a successful podiatrist, but we will find out later he had several lawsuits against him claiming malpractice, which was causing a lot of financial pressure at the time. So something happened with Ira's practice that's in the background. Okay, so Ira and his wife, Susan Bernstein, they have three children. And in November of 2014, that's how far we're going, they filed for divorce. Susan claimed that Ira had been abusive to her and the children, and Ira denied all these crimes. These crimes. Now, um, <laughs> let's... This first case is beyond anything. All right. So in the first case, prosecutors say that Ira had a patient named Kelly Greibluck. And he started having an affair with Kelly. Of course he did. Because of course he did. Of course he did. But Kelly's no ordinary woman. I want you to listen to Kelly's resume. Please. I can't. You just, you can't make this stuff up. She's a former mortician. Uh-huh. Wait. An aspiring model. <laughs> Wait. And then... In this last version of her life, before she gets sucked up in this and goes off to prison, she was selling orthotics. So orthotics are those little insoles that you put in your feet when your feet hurt. And remember, Ira's a podiatrist. Okay. And this is where love blossoms. I can't. Of course it does. <laughs> How you go from mortician to model to foot device saleswoman is some jumps that my brain cannot make. Mm -hmm. Those are not transferable skills. No, mm -hmm. they're really no. not. No, they're not. Okay. So <laughs> when she decides, Kelly decides she's going to get into the orthotics build business, she contacts Ira. And apparently that's when the affair really, really got going. Okay. Now, what's interesting is apparently the doctor and his wife were maybe trying to reconcile but then everything just implodes with the marriage. So the timing here was just like really horrible. So then Ira and Kelly, according to authorities, remember this case settled, conviction, sentenced, in prison. Ira and Kelly come up with this plan to kill the wife, Susan, by trying to hire a car salesman to kill Susan and make it look like an accident. The movie, Fargo. <laughs> <laughs> How they even came across the luxury car salesman and broached the topic and thought that perhaps the luxury car, car salesman would be capable of doing this. I mean, again, talk about some non-transferable skills. I'm not sure how the luxury car salesman was supposed to execute this 
execution, for lack of a better term. But he looked at that and said, oh, not good. I'm going to say yes. And I'm going to go to the cops because these people are cuckoo birds. And he's the only smart one in the group. Oh, absolutely. Markenzie Louis Saint is the one who they went to to get rid of Ira's problem. And he went to the cops and said, look, this is what's going on. And because the car salesman cooperated with the police, they were able to tape conversations and do surveillance on Kelly and Ira about this whole plan, which is how they got the evidence. He pretty much went undercover. I mean, this guy orchestrated essentially a successful sting. So you know what? I guess the skills were transferable in some ways. You want the luxury car salesman to be able to spin a story for you. And he convinced these people he was going to kill this woman all at the same time working for the police. It really does sound like a mo- someone should option. We should option this. Okay. It's an, it really is an excellent story. So he becomes the face of this sting. Yes. Extraordinary. So um, what ends up happening is that Ira offers the salesman, the car salesman, $100,000 to kill Susan. And then he gives $2,000 up front. So at that point, prosecutors and police have it. It's not just talk but it's money down. And it's usually when you money down is when they got you. And again, everything's caught on audio recordings, video recordings, surveillance. Good luck trying to get out of this one. Those are the toughest cases ever to get out of. Oh my goodness. (laughs) But there's more to this story. So while he's you know, getting all this background, these, these two, Kelly and Ira, apparently not only aren't they mad about Susan, want to get rid of her. They have other people in their sights they're having a tr- they're having trouble with. These people are crazy, okay? So they contact the salesman and they say, you know what? Could you do us a favor? There are these insurance investigators that are bothering Ira. Because remember, Ira's got something like $2 million in judgments against him trying to deal with his lawsuits. And so he wants them roughed up. Like, I guess Ira thinks that if you beat up the investigators, your problem will go away with them. They literally think they are in a mafia movie, that they suddenly have this enforcer that they're going to get to rough up these investigators so that they're their malpractice problems will go away because on top of all of it, apparently he's not a very good podiatrist. No, no, absolutely. So the cops are in on all of this and so are the targets of this hit, which we've seen before where police will use the the target, will tell them, oh my God, do you know what these people are planning to do to you? And, and then can get them to cooperate to stage photos and other things, which is what police did. So police... Again, this is through the informant. Police took pictures of the intended targets and they put makeup on them to make it look like they were bruised and beaten up. And so when the car salesman presented the photos to his clients, I guess, (laughs) Kelly and Ira, there's the proof. It's like, man, he this man can do anything. They really thought they were succeeding. Really thought they were succeeding. Yeah. And so they did not succeed. 
they were arrested. Kelly pleaded guilty to plotting the murder of Ira's wife in September of 2016. Ira would also plead guilty to the plot a little bit later in January of 2017. Kelly was sentenced to four to 12 years in prison, and she was released in May of 2021. Ira was sentenced to five to 15 years in prison and was released in July of 2021. And the story does not end there. A year later, it's all takes one year, July to July. Oh, my gosh. And he is plotting again, allegedly. He is plotting again, allegedly, according to investigators, to kill his estranged wife, Susan, who I do not believe they're divorced yet. I could not figure that out. Yeah, I didn't find anything on that. I'm sure really it was the least of her concerns once he was in in prison. But I also can't imagine they had a whole lot of contact after he went to prison for several years for trying to kill her. The fact that he got out and was still fuming mad about whatever, for whatever reason he was mad at her, tries to allegedly do it again from July to July, released in July of 2021. And prosecutors say that from July 2022 to September, he tried to get someone to murder his wife again. Unbelievable. <laughs> and it we really don't know the details. Is. Right. Yeah. And they haven't released anything other than the fact that they were charged, arraigned and pled not guilty. Mm-hmm. The brother and sister were arraigned on June 1st last week. They entered not guilty, please. Ira Bernstein has been indicted on charges of criminal solicitation in the second degree and fourth degree, as well as one count of tampering with physical evidence, one count of conspiracy in the fifth degree. The Rockland County District Attorney's Office says that Ira faces anywhere between three and a half and seven years in prison if convicted. I just, I just, I can't. (laughs) And this poor woman, poor Susan, who's going to have to go through this again if this man gets convicted and then gets out at some time. I mean, he's only in his late 40s. You know, seven years is not all that long, assuming that he gets convicted. Probably will get out some paroled early. And now if we, if you and I are talking about this in mm-hmm. five years, that Ira's going down for a third time, we're going to have, I need, I'll need a cocktail. Yeah, and and Susan's going to need a, a permanent bodyguard. <laughs> Poor Susan. I mean, and I do wonder if part of what brought the charges the second time around had something to do with investigators or police or protective order or some sort of protection for Susan, because I have to imagine she was likely looking out for something like this a second time around. She probably knows how cuckoo he is. <laughs> cuckoo is an understatement with Ira. <laughs> I just, I've just never, never. I mean, this is a man who's presumably rather well-educated because it takes a lot of years, a lot of training, a lot of schooling <laughs> to, to get through med school or whatever school you have to go through to be a podiatrist. I just, I don't understand. What is wrong with this man? I couldn't, couldn't. What is, what, I, I just keep wondering what Susan, what he perceived Susan has done to him that was so egregious that he would try this multiple times. Yeah. Learn your lesson. Learn your lesson, Ira. (laughs) It is time for our comment section. These are the crime cases you all are talking about on social media. And our producer, Will Updike, is here now. Hey, Will. Hey, how's it going? Good to see you, Anna. Good. Good to see you. 
<laughs> hey, Kaylin, great to see you as always. Hi, Will. <laughs> uh, so this week we have a case of a hot dog landing a Sonic employee in some hot water. Uh, this case comes out of New Mexico, where a Sonic employee was arrested after a customer allegedly was served a bag of cocaine with their hot dog order. So our suspect here, Jeffrey David Salazar, faces felony charges for possession of a controlled substance. Uh, and how this all came together was a female customer whose name has actually not been released, uh, went through a Sonic drive-through, ordering a Coney dog, which, you know, classic, top of chili, you got your cheese on there. It's a it's a, it's fantastic dri- drive-in meal. Uh, according to the incident report though, she bit into the order and realized she was chewing on a plastic bag. So she immediately called police uh, and they tested it and confirmed that the substance inside this baggie was cocaine. And police now are believing that the substance was inadvertently placed there. This wasn't like some sort of, uh, you know, drug drug deal or or, or secret order or something going on there. Uh, mm-hmm. so, An off-menu item? Are exactly. You? <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Uh, so a- according to uh, an affidavit for Salazar's arrest warrant, our suspect here, he was allegedly seen on video surveillance the day of the incident. He was doing what seemed to be like a hand to hand transaction with another female employee. Uh, and then he is later seen on the surveillance video, allegedly preparing the customer's order. And then he realizes that he might have lost something and appears to get kind of frantic. <sighs> Uh, which I would imagine, like, I can imagine you could see that concern from, from a mile away if, mm-hmm. if you were on film. They asked him where he got this, obviously, and he said that he had bought it somewhere in the parking lot. So I'm not sure exactly what's going on at this Sonic, but you can get cocaine a in the lot. parking lot. You can get it in the drive-in. <laughs> Do we know if she ordered a large Coke with her Coney Ooh, dog and they misunderstood? Good right. one, Caitlin. Good right. one. I mean, good, maybe it was just lost in transit. <laughs> exactly. Um, so the, the customer, they, they ended up saying that they don't think they ingested any of the powder. But uh, I found that they have hired a plaintiff's attorney and the firm has indicated that they intend to file a claim if these allegations are proven true. So this might be a double. This could be a double come up here, you know, a, an unknowing bag of cocaine and possibly a settlement. Who knows? Our commenters had a lot to say about this one. Uh, Asusena said, show us a picture of the dog, which I am like <laughs> desperate to see like what that looked like when they found it. Did she keep it whole? Do you finish the hot dog after? I, you know, like, I don't know. <laughs> I, I might finish it just depending on how, how long it's been since my last meal. Joel P uh, didn't have a problem with this. They said I would have gave that Sonic a stellar Yelp review. I got to be honest with you. I've never looked at a Yelp review for a fast food restaurant. I can't imagine. Like, I can't imagine what person is even typing that review. Unless oh, you're po- so judgy unless, sometimes. Well, unless, it's so po- judgy. Like, it, unless it's positive. I just feel like so t- so many times on Yelp, people are so complaining. I'm like, I don't need to see a bunch of people's complaints about the local McDonald's. I know what I'm getting. Uh, <laughs> Apparently not. If you're getting a baggie of Coke in your hot dog. <laughs> Raina has said some people are born complainers. Um, <laughs> uh, May said, OK, got it. Uh, they thought this was like a secret menu thing. They said, OK, got it. Hot dogs and Coke <laughs> equal cocaine. Sonic Blast equal meth. Sure don't want to confuse that order. Or do I? Uh, I I don't know if you all remember, like a couple years ago, there was like this really viral thing going on on social media about like all these secret off menu items that you could order. And then you would like show up to a drive through and say the ridiculous name of this thing. And the employees would, of course, be like, I don't know. Like, I have no <laughs> idea. I have no idea what you're talking about. Um <laughs> Uh, and then uh, our, our final comment today, Tia had a similar thinking as Caitlin. They said, I don't see the problem here. They ordered a hot dog and a Coke. There you have it. 
Um, I will continue to follow up on this story because I'm really curious to see if they do end up filing a claim here and, and how that sort of all unfurls. Luckily, you know, no one no one was harmed here. Could have been harmed because if the if the person had taken a bite into a bag of cocaine, let's say, and 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 ingested a rather large quantity. I mean, that could have sent that person into a heart attack or who knows what if it was such a so I actually I kind of I kind of agree with that lawsuit because it's Thank not you. like it was just a little piece of paper, a rubber band, and you know, you could have choked on a rubber band. But do you know what I'm saying? It's like, man, if that person had ingested that or if a child had bitten into it, oh, the 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 tragedy of that would have been oh, yeah. enormous. No, if this had been a child or something, I think <gasps> the, like the the entire oh tenor of this thing would be incredible. Or if the woman different. was pregnant, if the woman yes! was pregnant and ingested it, or Horrible. or if the woman was an addict in recovery and ingested it. I mean, you think about this could have gone very very poorly. I myself, if it were me, Sonic would be paying through the nose, no pun intended, for <laughs> trying to give me cocaine. I uh, agree. That's great. Uh, that is going to do it for this week's comment section. Thank you, everyone who left those on our YouTube community page. You can always reach out to us there. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. Uh, love to chop it up with you. I will see you all next week. I will. Thanks, Will. Well, thank you, Caitlin. I'm so glad you came back. Me I got too. so excited when I'm like, oh my gosh, Caitlin's coming back. So I hope you come back again. It's always Anytime. such a pleasure. I love doing these with you. It's so <laughs> fun to hash out these stories. I mean, the fun ones, the the tragic ones, I could talk to you all day about these things. Oh, thank you. We really appreciate your insight, especially because of the kind of work you do for the Daily Mail. I mean, this is your area of expertise and you all always lead the way with breaking news and getting stuff no other news organization gets. So um, it's it, you increase, as I say, you know, the, the price of real estate here on the podcast <laughs> by joining you. us. So, Caitlin, where can people follow you, your byline, all that good stuff? I am all over dailymail.com covering true crime. I'm all over the Daily Mail TikTok. And we actually have a true crime TikTok coming out that's going to be all mine, a new page. So keep your eye out for that while I will cover all things crime. And of course, my personal accounts are at Caitlin Becker across Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, you name it, I'm on there. Caitlin with a C. Caitlin with a C and a Y. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm Anna G, Anna with one N, and you can find me wherever you want. I mean, I don't post an awful lot on TikTok. I guess I should. I do have an account on TikTok, and occasionally I post something. I don't. Come over to the dark side. Come over to the dark side. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you can find this episode. All our episodes, wherever you get your podcasts, subscribe to our YouTube channel. More than 5 million subscribers. Sign up for our newsletter, truecrimedaily.com. So until next week, I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, don't do crime. Don't do crime.